All right, well, uh, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Hey, I know I normally don't do kind of cheesy introductions, but I'm going to do one right now. Uh, so uh, today's topic is Lord of the Storm, and we're going to talk a little bit about our fears, our anxieties when trouble and pain comes. But I know that each and every one of us have kind of like a, a, a little like neurotic weird phobia. Um, I didn't tell my wife I was going to say this, but my wife has what's called, is it tryptophobia, where like it's the patterns and the little dots. So the spores underneath the fern, it's like, oh, you know, like that, that just freaks her out, like so patterns. And so I, I know some people have like a fear of heights, fear of the dark, fear of clowns, uh, whatever it might be. But just really quick, think of your phobia. What's that one weird phobia that you have that you're like, stay away from me. I don't want to go there. I don't want to touch that. Think about that really quickly. Uh, turn to your neighbor and just confess it. Just be like, this is my fear. This is my anxiety. Yeah. If you're, uh, if you're laughing, you're mean. You're not supposed to laugh at each other's fears and weaknesses. We will, uh, we will work on, um, we'll work on compassion. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, I, when I was kind of like thinking about this, I was like, I don't think I have any phobias. Like, I, I, I think I'm like pretty, free, like, honestly, I, like, I was really trying to process. I was like, I think I'm good. But then I realized every time I go in the ocean, I'm afraid I'm going to step on something that's like, like, you know, like a stingray or whatever it might be. And so I'm scared of that. And then uh, I, I tell myself, I'm not like afraid of heights, but every time I go somewhere really high and I look down, I get shook. And so I am, I am afraid of heights. Um, and so I, uh, I just need more self-awareness. And I realize I have a lot more fear uh, than I am willing to confess. Well, um, if you visited last week, thank you for coming. Uh, I know Easter is a, a big kind of Christian holiday, and it's a great time to kind of uh, check out church again, to give church and maybe faith and uh, God a second chance, a second run in your life. And if you've come back, that is just amazing. We, we've been praying for you, and we're just celebrating uh, just God's work in your life, and we hope we can continue uh, to walk with you. Uh, we took a pause last week from our series, but we've been preaching and learning through the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to get back into that. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn to Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. And may God bless the reading of his holy and inspired word. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, and the stern is the back of the boat, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and, and said to the sea, Peace. Be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with a great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Amen. 
Amen. This is another well-known story of Jesus, where he shows us not only his great power and authority over nature, he also shows us his gracious presence and his love for us. And in this passage, Mark wants us to see that there are three kind of great events that take place here. First, we see a great storm. Second, we see a great calm. And thirdly, we see a great fear. And and he uses these key adjectives for us. There's a great storm, a great calm, and a great fear. And that's actually going to be the outline for us as we work through uh, our passage today. So let's get right into it. A great storm. Jesus has just finished a full day of teaching. And at the end of the day, he commands the disciples, let's go to the other side. Right, So they're at the Sea of Galilee. That's what we know from the previous verses. And he says, you know what, let's, let's separate. Let's separate from the crowds. We need to rest. And we need to separate from the crowds because I need to continue preaching the gospel to others, people who haven't yet heard it. And so he wants to cross over the Sea of Galilee, go to the other side. And now the Sea of Galilee, a little bit of background, it's actually not a saltwater sea. It's a freshwater lake. And it sits about 700 feet below sea level. So it's the lowest freshwater lake in the world. Uh, But it was quite large. It's quite large. And so that's why it was called the Sea of Galilee. It's about 13 miles long and 8 miles wide. And uh, And it reaches depths to 141 feet. Now, if you're like most people, you're like 13 miles. You don't have a gauge for that. I was on Google Maps. 13 miles is from here, this church campus, to JPL in La Cañada. So just imagine that drive down the 210, and all of that is water, okay? Now, when I first came to California, I visited Lake Arrowhead and Lake Elsinore, and to me, those were ponds. Those were tiny. Those just didn't feel like lakes at all. The Sea of Galilee is 53 times larger than Lake Arrowhead, okay? Uh, The Sea of Galilee is 12 times, multiple of 12 times larger than Lake Elsinore. So those things truly are ponds compared to Galilee. And Jesus says, let's go to the other side. So it is a significant journey. It's a significant kind of uh, trip that these disciples are making on the boat. And uh, the Sea of Galilee not only rests below sea level, it's also surrounded by mountains. Very high mountains, Mount Hebron is 9,000 feet. And so when you combine mountains and then a sea that's 700 feet below sea level, you get these drastic climate changes, large gusts of wind. So severe storms can happen just instantaneously. And that's even true today as uh, people go and travel to Galilee. And so while they're going across the lake, A great storm arises, and it terrifies the disciples. Now, before we think, man, these disciples are just kind of soft and and chickens, and they're just scared of the water, just like Pastor Michael is, scared of the ocean, um, we have to remember who these disciples were, okay? These were men of the sea. Peter and his brother Andrew, James and his brother John were experienced fishermen, They knew how to sail. They had fished these waters. They grew up on the shores of Galilee. They could handle themselves on a boat. But this storm is so great that they are fearing for their lives. This should tell us that this is no ordinary storm. The wind is rushing. The water and the waves are crashing against the boat. So violently, the the boat is filling with water. And what is Jesus doing? He's in the stern. He's in the back of the boat. And he's asleep on a cushion. And they can't believe it. 
Their lives are in danger. They're like, Lord, Rabbi, we are perishing and you are sleeping. How can you sleep at a time like this? And if you think, man, that's impossible. Who would be able to fall asleep on like a rocking boat? Uh, Parents, no. You guys have had kids that just sleep through anything, right? And you're like, actually, the more movement, the better, right? It's actually if your car is too smooth, uh, they they, they won't fall asleep. I personally uh, can fall asleep anywhere. Um, The craziest time I fell asleep was uh, while playing guitar, at a retreat. I was on the worship team, okay? I'm on the worship team, and the pastor is just going so long with his prayer topics, and I'm like, and I, and I fell asleep. Like, no, no joke. No, I felt like I, it, was, it was weird, but it happens. And so I do believe Jesus truly was asleep during this storm. And after all, um, here's the other thing. The disciples were, were just at wit's end. They're scared to literal death. And this is what they're thinking. Jesus, you got us into this. It was your idea to cross the lake. You are the one who commanded us to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And now there's a storm and we're about to die and you are not doing anything to help us. Peter must have been thinking, take some responsibility, Jesus, do something. They're desperately trying to keep the boat afloat. Did you know this is actually the only time in the Gospels where we are told that Jesus is asleep? Yeah, I'm sure he slept, but this is the only time the gospel writers make note that Jesus is asleep. It's during the storm. Just think about the irony, right? Think about the irony. The only time we know that Jesus is, yeah, uh, it's written that he's sleeping. It's during the storm. So the disciples wake him and they rebuke him. Okay, they rebuke him. They say, teacher or rabbi, do you not care that we are perishing? And these words are this kind of funny mixture of being rude And at the same time, like remembering your place, remembering that Jesus is the rabbi. It's like in grade school when you say something out of line to your teacher, but at the end you say, sir, or or, ma'am. Or in Korean, there's like, there's honorific language. And to make sure you honor the person you're talking to, you add a yo at the end to it. So I'm like, I don't want to. And then you say, yo, because you're talking to your parents and make sure you're, you're not out of place. And this is what the disciples had done. They said, do you not care that we are perishing? Rabbi, right? Rabbi. Now, there are two things that I want us to see from the great storm. First, it is this. It is Jesus who led them into the storm. It was his idea. Jesus really was the one who got them and led them into trouble. Jesus was the greatest teacher that these disciples had ever heard. He had performed the most amazing miracles that they had ever seen. And and over and over again, Jesus is building their trust, winning them over. And now he's led them into trouble. And this just didn't make sense to them. This just didn't make sense. Jesus, why would you let this happen? Why would you lead them into the storm like this? We were doing what you commanded and look where it got us. We signed up to be fishers of men, not to be fish food or to be drowning with the fishes. So they get upset. They get upset with Jesus. They rebuke him. And so would we. Friends, doesn't this resonate with us? When you and I find ourselves in trouble, we ask ourselves, what did we do to deserve this? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to my family? There are some of you here today, and I don't make light of this, your lives are filled with trouble. Your lives are filled with trouble. And what confuses you more than anything is the fact that you're trying to follow Jesus and your lives are filled with trouble. You're trying to go to the Bible. 
You're trying to take it to God in prayer. You're trying to love God and love others. So your trouble isn't coming because you're like living in utter rebellion and and wandering in darkness. You're actually trying to follow Jesus, but things aren't working out in your life. Perhaps it is school and you're failing out. Perhaps it's work and there's just so much financial hardship. Perhaps your relationships are broken People that you care about are abandoning you. Your marriage is on, 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 it's frayed and hurting. Perhaps your loved ones are afflicted with illness. And you're saying, God, why? I, 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 I'm dedicating my life to you. I'm dedicating my, my work, my job, my business. I want to dedicate my family to you. And here you are taking these things away from me. You're in the storm. And as human beings, when pain enters into our lives, we need to make sense of it, don't we? We need to be able to process it. We need to be able to understand it and cope with it. We are just naturally wired that way. We want to say, if we say Al, we want to know why. Where did that come from? Why is this happening? There are three ways that we kind of cope and deal with pain. First is this. Uh, Some people take the agnostic view. And they'll just say, you know what? Pain is pain. There's no reason for it. There is, no, there is no purpose for it. It just is what it is. And so what we have to do is just grind and get through it, right? This are, these are moments when we need grit. Here's the thing. If you live like that, if that's what pain is for you, if that's how you understand and process it, that leads to fatalism. That tells you that there's no purpose. There's no purpose for this pain. There's no redemption for this pain. The second way people handle pain is karma, a view of karma. They think, man, this is happening to me because I did something wrong, right? Maybe it's a generational curse or maybe it's my sins that are coming back to haunt me and I deserve what's happening to me. And so we blame ourselves. We blame our actions. We blame blame our company. We blame other things, our decisions. Here's the thing. If that is your system, if that's where you think pain comes from, that leads to self-loathing. And you know what else that does? That leads to this unhealthy, unattainable desire to be perfect, right? You're saying if, if the way to avoid pain is to not make mistakes, not make bad decisions, not do bad things, then you're going to try and live this perfect life so it never happens again. But all of us know that that's impossible. All of us know that that's impossible. And so you're on this endless cycle. That's where karma leads you, this endless cycle of self-loathing, overemphasizing your responsibility, causation, and guilt, and it gets us nowhere. But the Bible tells us that our God is a sovereign God, and he has a purpose for everything. He has a purpose for everything. And sometimes God does bring pain into our lives out of discipline. He does want to correct his children. So when we are in disobedience, he will. He is willing to bring the storm into your life to bring you back, to get your attention. C.S. Lewis C.S. Lewis famously writes that God whispers during our pleasures, but he shouts during our pain. He shouts during our pain. So there are times when God will use pain to get your attention. This uh, This was the case of Jonah. Jonah, who encountered a literal storm, just like Jesus and the disciples here. Why? Because he was running away from God. God said, go and preach to Nineveh. And Jonah said, no, I'm going to take the boat in the opposite direction. God brought a storm to correct him. But other times, God leads us into the storm, not because we've done anything wrong. 
God leads us into the storm, not because of disobedience, but for something greater. He wants to build something greater in you. And that thing is faith. That thing is faith. What does Jesus ask? When he sees all the fear, all the anxiety, all the responses of the disciples, he says, why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? The disciples had done nothing wrong here. Jesus said, let's go to the other side. They obeyed, and yet the storm came. Why? Because God wanted to build in them faith. And I believe that there are many of you here today who are in the storm, and it's not your fault. You're in the storm, and it's, it's not because of your sin. You're in the storm because God wants to strengthen your faith. In the midst of your loss, your anxiety, your fear, and your pain, God wants to teach you what it means to rely on him, to enjoy and experience his peace and his presence. This is what's going on here. The storm has come because Jesus wants to strengthen their faith. But at first, they don't get it. They don't get it. And so they're angry and they're confused, so much like we would be as well. And out of their confusion, they come to a a conclusion, okay? They think he doesn't care. And this is the second thing I want us to see about the storm. Not only does Jesus, and is Jesus willing to lead us into the storm? The second thing that I want us to see is that we are prone to interpret, interpret the storm as divine indifference, okay? And that's a very dangerous thing. The disciples literally say it. They say, teacher, rabbi, do you not care? We're about to die, and you don't care. You don't give a rip. You are asleep on the cushions in the back of the boat while we are trying to bail as much water out of the boat and save ourselves and save you, our teacher, and you just don't care. And brothers and sisters, if we are honest, we have felt this way. When you have been in the storm, you felt, and you probably came to the conclusion, God, where are you? God, do you not care? We felt so alone in our pain and suffering. God seemed so distant and absent. And that temptation is so real to conclude that God doesn't care. When your children are sick, you feel like it's all you. Where's where's the help of God? When you're stressed about school or work, it's all you. You gotta roll up your sleeves and you gotta deal with your stuff and you don't think God cares. You don't believe that God's gonna provide for you. You have to provide for yourself when you're dealing with conflict in your family or in relationships. You just don't sense that God is caring. In those moments, God seems asleep and indifferent. But I wanna challenge you to see it from God's vantage point, that he does have a purpose for you in the storm, that he is using trials to test your faith and these trials to to bring you closer to him. You see, the storm is not a sign of God's indifference. No, the storm is a sign for God's zeal for you, his desire for you to be close to him. John Newton, the author of that great hymn, Amazing Grace. John Newton, he wrote a wonderful poem titled, A Prayer Answered by Crosses. A Prayer Answered by Crosses. And I just wanna read a line, read a line for you, and it's gonna go up on the screen. This is what it says. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may seek thy all in me. Okay. This is from the vantage point of God. This is what God is willing to do to win you over, to win your faith, 
to draw you close to him, that he is willing to employ trials onto your life, that you would be set free from your pride, set free from just earthly, situational joy, that you would experience his joy and his peace, that he would be your portion, that he would be your all. This is what God wants to do. He doesn't want to take your comfort. He doesn't want to take your joy as a thief. No, he wants to give you true joy and comfort in him. That's the heart of God. That's the vantage point of God in the midst of the storm that you might be going through today. This leads us to the second point of our passage, a great peace, a great peace. The disciples have accused Jesus of not caring. We see the opposite. They accuse him of being a poor leader, leading them into the storm, but he has a greater purpose. And Jesus responds to their accusations in an amazing fashion, and he brings calm to the storm. Let's go to back to verse 39. Verse 39. And when he, this is Jesus, when he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still, and the, sea, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Imagine the scene. The wind is rushing. The waves are crashing violently. Jesus rises and he says three words. Three words. And then no wind, no waves. Everything is calm. If you've ever seen a still lake in the morning, it's like glass. It is so calm. And in this moment, imagine that happening. Imagine being in the midst of a storm and you see Jesus there and he says, peace, be still. And suddenly those 40, 50, 60 mile hour winds are gone. Those waves that are crashing, coming over the sides of the boat, suddenly everything is still and quiet and peaceful. And in that moment, Jesus is showing the disciples who he truly is. He's not just a great teacher. He's not just a miracle healer. He is the son of God who has authority, all authority in heaven and on earth. Church, throughout this series, I've, I've stressed the fact that all of the miracles of Jesus have a greater purpose than just doing medical missions. All of the miracles of Jesus have a greater purpose than just kind of showing off and impressing people in the moment. The purpose of the miracles are to authenticate the message of Jesus, okay? Jesus says, I am the son of God. I'm here to bring the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus declares that somebody's sins are forgiven and he backs all of that up with his miracles so that the people would realize that he is who he says he is. The miracles demonstrate his identity as the son of God. You guys remember the story of the paralytic, the paralyzed man. And the first thing Jesus says to him, he says, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees judge him. They're like, who has the authority to forgive sins but God alone. And, and Jesus shows, shows them up. He says, just so that you would believe, just so that you would believe that the son of man has authority to forgive sins, rise, take your mat and walk. And he does. We see there the purpose of the miracles. And here, the same thing is going on. You know, in the Old Testament, the sea represents chaos and violence. In our culture, right, Southern California, the sea is like relaxation right? Uh, the sea is, 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 is a vacation, right? It's, it's stress-free, but in the Old Testament in those days, no, the sea did not represent relaxation. It represented chaos and violence. It was untamable. 
It was mighty and wild, and only God had authority over the sea. In Psalm 107, we have this prophetic passage. It's a prophetic psalm, and it's painting a picture of God gathering all of his people from the north to the south to the east and the west. And it's this picture of of God redeeming his people from all over the earth. Verse 28 begins here. This is what, what the psalmist writes in verse 28. Then they cried to the Lord. All of these people who are scattered in the midst of the storm, they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. And they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven, that resting place. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Brothers and sisters, little quick Bible study tip. When you see all capital L-O-R-D for Lord, that in the Hebrew is Yahweh, the name of God, right? Yahweh would be the one that would hush the waters. Yahweh would be the ones who would cause these violent winds to be but whispers, and he would bring his people into this desired haven. Well, you know what's happening here in Mark chapter four? Jesus is making that connection that he is God, that he is God incarnate, that this prophetic Psalm in 107 where Yahweh would gather his people from the ends of the earth and bring them into peace, bring them into the haven of God, that is happening. That promise, that hope is being fulfilled in Jesus. But although Jesus has brought calm, to the wind and the waves. He knows that there's still fear in the disciples' hearts. And so at the end of this passage, after the waves have been calmed, he looks at the disciples and he says, why are you still afraid? Have you no faith? And this leads us into our final point, a great fear, a great fear. The disciples have seen the great storm. They've seen and experienced the great calm, but Mark tells us that their hearts were still filled with fear. And we have to ask why. Why? I mean, after you see this miracle, wouldn't, you just, wouldn't your heart just be filled with, with love and, and gratitude and, and, and just be amazed and be like, Jesus, you are, are awesome. Well, verse 41 tells us, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You see, they did see that Jesus was awesome, but in the old English, awe means terrible, uh, terrifying terrifying. And they were filled with awe and wonder. They were filled with terror because they'd never seen and met a man like this. They were filled with fear because they were beginning to understand that Jesus was more than a gifted man. He was more than a special man. He was more than a godly and a holy man. You see, the disciples had seen his humanity. They had traveled with him. They had had eaten with him, right? But now they were beginning to see his divinity beginning to see his divinity. Have you ever been in the presence of just someone awesome, someone great, someone who is almost like superhero status to you? Uh, When I was a young kid, um, I was really into like uh, wrestling, right? And so back then there was WCW and WWF, and I'm totally dating myself. So all the the kids now are like WWE. Anyways, and uh, so I was at an Italian restaurant, and I'm probably like third grade, second grade, and at that point, I remember in... uh, Third grade, I was 3'11", because we did, uh, you know, measurement, and I wore my soccer cleats to try to get to four feet. Four feet. I didn't make it. Um, and so I'm at this Italian restaurant with my friends, and I saw Lex Luger. 
Lex Luger and all of my generation above, they know, like, Lex Luger, like, anyways. And so he's this professional wrestler, and he's huge. And I was filled with awe and terror. I was, I was like, I was so amazed, but at the same time, I was scared of him. Because, like, he does this move called a Lugerplex, and I didn't want him to Lugerplex me. And, and, like, and so when I went up to him, I was, like, I was so scared to ask for his autograph. And my dad was like, just go. Just go. He'll be cool. And, like, literally, it took me 30 minutes. It took me 30 minutes. Like, I, I couldn't eat. I couldn't do anything. I was, like, back and forth, just like, oh. But, but that was me. And this is just Lex Luger, right? He's just a man with, like, beautiful blonde flowing hair, like, down to his shoulders, right? But just a man, just a man, and I was paralyzed, and I was paralyzed. These disciples were in awe and wonder of Jesus. Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You see, if they were afraid of the storm because it was powerful and dangerous, how much more should they fear the man who with three words calmed the storm? I love what one pastor said about the difference between Jesus and the storm. And it's this. The storm doesn't love you. The storm doesn't love you. Both are powerful. Both are overwhelming. Both are unmanageable. Both are absolutely beyond you. Both can even be seen as a threat. But Jesus is Lord of the storm. And to quote C.S. Lewis, though Jesus is not safe, he is good. Yes, Jesus is not safe. He is a storm, right? But he is good, and he loves you. I mentioned earlier that this story parallels the story of Jonah and the great fish. In both stories, uh, we see boats that are overtaken by a storm. Both Jesus and Jonah, in the story, they were asleep. In both stories, the sailors or the disciples, they, they wake up the sleeper out of fear of death. They're saying, we are going to die. We need to do something. And they tell Jonah to pray to your God that maybe something will happen. And they say, Jesus, do something. Do you not care that we are about to perish? And in both cases, a divine miracle calms the sea. But there is one key difference. Do you remember the way the storm was calmed in Jonah? Do you remember the way the storm was calmed in Jonah? It wasn't by Jonah's words. You see, in Jonah chapter 1, verse 12, he wakes up and he knows he knows it's because he's running from God. He knows it's because of disobedience. And so this is what he says. He says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest or storm has come upon you. And at first the sailor is like, no way. We are not about to throw you overboard and commit, uh, you know, nautical murder, Right? We're not going to do that. And so they keep trying to bail and they keep trying to sail and, and it's not working. And finally they do. They finally throw Jonah into the water and he's swallowed up by a fish. The storm was calmed and the sailors were spared. You see, Jesus in Matthew 8, he says, I am the greater Jonah. I am the true Jonah. And when he says that, when he's explaining that to his disciples, he is talking about the fact that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, and after that he was spit out. But why did he go there in the first place? And Jesus is telling us that there is a day that he will calm all the storms. One day he will still all of the waves. And how will that happen? By Jesus himself being thrown into the waves of sin and death. That is the promise 
that Jesus is making to us. That is the connection here. In the same way that the only way the sailors were spared was by throwing Jonah into the waters. Brothers and sisters, the only way you and I are spared from the greatest storm of all, the storms of sin and death, the greatest threat of all, that threat of the judgment and wrath of God that is awaiting for us, in light of all of our rebellion, in light of all of our sin, that great storm that is over us, we were spared. We were rescued from that storm because Jesus went into the waves. Jesus went to the cross. He went to death. He was buried, and three days later, he rose again. Brothers and sisters, that is the gospel. That is the gospel. That is the extent of Jesus' love for you. You see, the disciples asked, do you not care? You know what they forgot? Jesus is with them in the boat. How could they discount the love of Christ in the midst of his presence? But friends, we do that all the time. We gather in the church, the house of the Lord. We gather with his people, and yet our hearts are so filled with unbelief. Not believing that God is for us. But yeah, yeah, God, God loves Pastor Michael because he's ordained and you know, he literally works for the church, but he doesn't love me. Yes, God is working in, in my friend's family or that person in, in my small group, but not me. He's not for me. He can't save me from my storm. I'm so glad to hear that testimony from my sister, that testimony of my friend, of, of how God has healed them, have got, how God has blessed them. But, but for me, I just don't see God doing anything. I don't sense God caring and God working. Jesus is asking you today, have you no faith? Have you no faith? If Jesus is able to calm the ultimate storm, rescuing us and sparing us, from the grasp of hell and the penalty of sin, can Jesus not calm the small storm in your life? Will he not care for you? Will he not provide for you? Will he not offer you his peace? Brothers and sisters, let's look to Jesus. Let's place our faith in him. Let's thank him for saving us, not sparing himself, but offering himself as a sacrifice, as a ransom, that you and I can become sons and daughters of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. And we want to acknowledge that you are sovereign and that you have authority in our lives and in our circumstances. We confess that we struggle with that. We want to craft our lives we want to design things for ourselves, our families, our future. But Lord, we want to take a moment and acknowledge that, that we don't have that kind of authority. We don't have that kind of control. Try as hard as we might. We understand that you are the God who numbers our steps. You are the God who knows our days. And so Lord, that means that, that you can lead us into the storm and that your ways are higher than ours. And sometimes that is to correct us because we're going in the wrong direction. But other times we see today that it's because you wanna build in us faith. You wanna give us a greater comfort than this world has to offer. 
You want to give us a greater joy than this world has to offer. And so, Lord, I pray that right now, if, if any of my friends here are in the midst of a storm, help them to see their circumstance, not just from an earthly, temporal vantage point, but help them to see it from your eyes. Help them to know your heart, that you mean it for good. That you are a God who works out all things for our good according to your perfect and sovereign purposes. Help us to believe. Help us to understand. Help us to draw close. That's our prayer. I thank you in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.